Would you please stand for the reading of Scripture? And I'd ask you to read along the underlined parts. Have this mind, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who is, he already existed in the form of God, did not count quality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason, God, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Please be seated. How do we approach a text as exalted and magnificent as this text? I thought to get it across, I, I thought I would come up here and maybe just take off my shoes before I came over to read the word to get that impression that we're on holy ground with this passage. Uh, but my family kind of knows my gracefulness and I probably, either getting out of my shoes or getting back in, would trip and it's hardly a way to set the stage for this passage. I thought, though, maybe I would have you guys take off your shoes when we stood to read. But I know some of you guys have your stinky, mismatched socks on from yesterday, and some of you just have nasty feet. And so we just read it together. But I, I hope in reading you were reminded again of the magnificence of this text, the largeness of what is there. So how do we approach it? And I decided there were two ways of doing this, but actually there was only time for one. So there are a couple of approaches, and I want to tell you this ahead of time because someone might go home saying, he said he was going to preach on this passage, but he really didn't preach on it. He just kind of nibbled around the edges. That we can either, I think, say what the set text is saying, or we can try to do what the text is doing, what it's trying to do. And by that I mean that if we're going to say what the text says, we would be involved in picking, about, picking apart words and phrases and referring to Greek words and definitions, hoping to understand at a deeper level what this passage means. And that's a valid and it's an important thing to do. Or, and this will be the approach I'm taking today, we could try to say, what is the text doing? What is Paul trying to accomplish by this text? 
you know, what is his purpose in using this magnificent statement about who Jesus is? This almost creed-like statement. And that's where I want to go because I think what Paul is doing is really not trying to teach them this passage like they don't know it. I mean, if I was going to have a new believers class, new Christian class, this would be one of the texts that's going to be in day one. And Paul says, I think, no. That's what you have as a pre-baptismal class, a pre-believer class. This is what everybody already believes if they're a Christian. So Paul is not teaching something that those who are Christians need to learn. He assumes they know it. And he's using this passage to come accomplish something in their lives. It's like, here is our, here is our sinner. We believe this. We know this. It is our common ground. We don't have to argue about it. But what he wants to do is get to what does that mean for the way you are living and the situation you find yourselves in. And what Paul essentially is telling them is that all your Christian living must be God-centered, God-focused. And for us as believers... We understand that Jesus is the incarnation of God, the presence of God uh, among man, as man. And so we look to him to understand God-like qualities, God-like behaviors, the true nature of God. And so for us as Christians, we have to say, all our living, as far as it is Christian living, will be living focused on, on this message of Jesus, who he is. Our living is to live out this person. So in the midst of this, in fact, maybe to show that that Paul is not just trying to teach them something new or correct some misbelief, actually on both sides of the text are implications that he wants to use it to do something else. That this is more the common ground. Before the text starts, he said, Um, have this attitude in you that was also in Christ. He really says, think this. Think this. As in the midst of what he's already telling them, he says, think this. And really, there are two words there. There's the imperative in the word think and the word this. So it means think this or think this way. Now, I know our translations have what probably is the best way to get this across in English have this mind among you, have this attitude among you, have this mindset among you. And that's probably the best way to put it in English. But it loses a little bit of the force. Because uh, in those, those constructions, have is the imperative. And it's kind of a weak verb. Paul's word is to think in the imperative. Think this way. And also recognizing that, well, I think help make some other connections. So as he comes to them, he is going to say, you need to think this way in 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 the matter that we're talking about. With what's going on, think this way, and then he lays out this magnificent passage of Jesus. And then afterwards, he calls them to obedience, just as you always obeyed, now not only in my uh, presence, but also in my absence. Work out your salvation. That is, live this out. Live what you have in Christ. Live it out for it is God who is working within you, both the desire and the ability to do that. 
That is, the passage starts with imperative, think this way, and it ends with a thing of obedience. Obey this, live this out. So what Paul is not doing so much as saying, here's something you don't know I'm going to teach you. He says, here's what we all know, we all believe, but what does that matter for what our lives? How do we, in fact, come to take on this mind of Christ and live it out? We fail. <laughs> we fail. So many ways and so many times do we fail. And here's grace. That God doesn't abandon us in that failure. But he is always calling us back to set our mind on Christ again. To get our focus back where it needs to be and then begin living that out again. I read a book by a doctor some years ago, and this doctor was on the staff at a medical college. And during orientation one year, they have all the brand new medical students come in, and they have an orientation period. And during that time, uh, one of the times is they had some of the doctors meeting with a group of students, just informally to talk about things, part of their orientation. And he said, well, I decided with my group just to start off with a question for him to say, what is the most important part of the healing process? And students were kind of hesitating. You don't want to get your first question at medical school wrong. But some, one of them said, it's, you know, I think it's the doctor-patient relationship. And what is happening there? And somebody chimes in with, yeah, there's got to be good communication and, and, and being modern people, the importance of touch. All of those things. And somebody said, well, you know, it's the pharmaceuticals. We need to have access to the best that and have knowledge about what works. And somebody's talking about the teamwork of the thing. And at some point, the doctor said, none of you gave me the word I was looking for. It's diagnosis. All of those things are great, but if you got the wrong diagnosis, you're not going to move in the direction of health. And I think what Paul is doing in this process, as we see, is he is diagnosing a problem. He looks at the indications, the symptoms. He gives a picture of what health needs to be. He looks at the problem, and he prescribes something for them. Now, the symptoms that are there, you could gather some of them from our immediate context, but what we do is really see them over in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to bounce around a little bit. He says, I entreat Udiah and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Picture that situation. What we know or... <laughs> what we think we know, is when a letter came to a church, that was a big thing. Paul wrote us a letter, and they all gather for this. And Paul's going through a number of things in the letter, and at some point, he just says, Udiah, Syntyche, I need you to get along. You help them. They've worked so well together, at least in the past and now. Help them. You wonder when early in the letter Paul is talking about the need for unity in the church, or are they kind of squirting down a little bit? Is Paul talking about me? 
because they have some problem now. And, and they're looking around, is anybody looking at me to see if Paul's talking about me? And, and the other people are kind of looking around to say, does she know Paul's talking about her? And, uh, and we've got this situation. And, and uh, since Paul is not there presently, I think he would deal with it differently if he was present, but he only has the letter. So he calls them out right there, and he tells them to agree. Agree. Which is actually the undertying task is think the same. It's our same verb for earlier. Think this about Christ. And now he tells them, think the same. By the way, I mentioned on that word think. This verb, because it's a sermon, you need some statistics, sorry. The verb occurs 26 times in the New Testament. There are seven books where it occurs one time only. In the book of Romans, it occurs nine times. In the book of Philippians, it occurs ten times. You say nine, ten, pretty close. Until you do and look at word counts and say, hey, actually Romans by word count is 4.3 times longer than Philippians. So if you have the same concentration of that word in Romans as you do and have in Philippians, you would, it would occur 43 times there. So somehow this verb seems to stand out. It's a real concern of Paul or usage and emphasis, part of the background of what he's doing. And here he's telling them, think the same or think the same thing. There's our symptom. There's disunity. But Paul also goes on to give them the picture of what health is. And go back to chapter 1. Chapter 127, we get the big heading. This is starting the main section that our passage is found in. And so he'll say in 127, only let your manner, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm and in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Worthily living Christ is living in this unity, this oneness. And then he goes on to talk about persecution. So he's talking about their unity in the face of the persecution of the church. And go down to 2.1 as we move into our more immediate context, where he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and, and his if could be translated since. He assumes these are the case because he's going to argue off of that. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Actually, you know what Paul says there? Think one. Think one thing. It's our same verb. <laughs> that is, come together and be thinking about I mean, thinking the same, I'm sorry. Did I say think the one? Did I misspeak? Um, think the same. And actually, the same thing he asked for you, Diane Syntyche, that they think the same thing. And Paul says, complete my joy by now you thinking the same thing. Okay. Um, he says, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And that's where Paul actually says, Think one thing. It's our same verb. Thinking one thing. Does he catch us? Think the same thing. 
think the one thing. Think about Christ. And he goes on. Um, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others is more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So think this way about Christ. There's Paul's picture of hell, where he wants to get us. A church that is unified. People thinking the same thing. Thinking one thing together. giving ourselves out, serving one another, not thinking too highly of ourselves, but taking on the mind of Christ. There's our hell. But if you read in between the lines in a couple of those verses, I think we see the underlying problem. The symptom is disunity. But where does that come from? Look back at verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition, Or conceit. Selfish ambition. Focusing on me and what I want. Conceit. Thinking myself more highly than other people. That is what is going on there. And then he says uh, in in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. But also to the interests of others having to encourage people not to focus on themselves and what they are, but they need to change. So here it is. It is this self-focus, this self-centeredness, the focus on our things that underlie the issue of division. And so Paul then calls on them to what is a healing place, and it is to think the way Christ thought. This one who yielded his position, his rights, and empties himself, pours himself out to take the lowest position of status, the status of, you may have servant, but it's the same word, more often translated slave, and now he dies a death that is below contemplation in, the, in, in a sense in the Roman world. It's a death for treason, for traitors, the lowest. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. And Christ goes so far at his death. And we read among the Romans that among dignified society, the idea of crucifixion and the word cross should not even be spoken. And that's how low Christ goes for us. And so that is what Paul calls us to do. Here's our healing. Here's our healing. To take on the mindset of Christ and live that out. Impossible. I look at my life and my history, or you can look at yours, I think it's impossible that we are actually going to live out a life that seems like Christ. And really it is impossible if, if there is no divine power there. But if there's a divine power at work here, as Paul has said, the one who's working in you both the desire and the ability to live this out, then it becomes a then it becomes possible. Still seems impossible to me. I look at myself and it's impossible. And ultimately, you need some sort of transformation if this is going to happen. And that transformation deliberately. I am going to have to be changed if that happens. 
And ultimately, I think that idea of transformation we get to ties into the dilemma here. On one hand, Paul has already said, it is God who is working and willing to do this, but you're given a command. Think the mind of Christ. Think this way. But we can't do that. Only God does that. In that dilemma of understanding, what, how do we deal with this command of something that we simply can't do? How does that work? And I would jump over to the key transformation passage in Romans 12 too. You know it. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And we have the same kind of dilemma here. You are commanded, be transformed. You plural, be transformed. But the verb is a passive. Somebody else has to be transforming you. How are you commanded to do something someone else does? It's not like transform something or transform yourself, but it's command to be transformed, and Paul will say, by the renewal of your mind. And, uh, and that word renewal for me, most typically for Paul, it's connected with the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's work of transforming our minds that leads to us, leads to this translation. So we're commanded, be transformed by the Holy Spirit's renewing your mind. And how do those two things happen? You be transformed, but only the Holy Spirit can do that. And the only way I can really best make sense of how we, how we understand that command is allow yourselves to be transformed. Let yourselves be transformed by the work of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit does the work, but somehow we are involved, and I take it in the sense that we are creating an open space. We are creating a receptive place for the Holy Spirit to do its work. And I think that idea of how we take that command may tie into what we're doing here. It is only the Holy Spirit's work in us that will create the mind of Christ. And so when he tells us, think this, think this way, I can't do it, but I can open up. I can create a place to allow the Spirit to start working in my life that that happened. So how is it that we open up, that we create that receptive place? And I would say, I think probably the largest term for this, the broadest term, is worship. It is as we focus our worship on Christ, that we create an open space for the Spirit to start working and transforming us. I think of uh, Beale's book, that we become what we worship. There's no, you don't get to become gods. But that he says, you become like what you worship. You start to take on the characteristics of those things that you exalt and put in high place. There is a process by which it happens, and through worship, we become like what we worship. One of the graduate courses I had was uh, taught by a Frenchman, Daniel Pott. And it was a seminar uh, in something like uh, Structural Linguistics and Biblical Interpretation. And I don't know what it means either. Um, 
nice Frenchman. It was a seminar. But in that seminar, there were three of his doctoral students, three of the students who had come there actually specifically to work in that field with him and study in that field. And so it's interesting, this seminar of about 12 people, Dr. Pott invited over to his house for a dinner. And so we're out there, and, and Dr. Pott, obviously, uh, being a Frenchman, is serving wine, and it's not this cheap American drivel stuff. He's, so it's the first time I had a religion professor invite you over for wine. But anyway, we're sitting out in the backyard. It was a beautiful night up there in Nashville, and he had some chairs out in the backyard, and we were sitting down to talk. And it's Danielle Pott put his, crossed his leg over the other leg as he sat back, kind of philosophical position. He, you know, narrow crossing of his legs, not the American man spread thing. And, uh, and then he, he sat back and he had a, or a, a pipe he was smoking. And I looked at the way he was holding his pipe and I think I would have to dislocate fingers and wrists to get my hand twisted around in that thing. What was interesting, as we were talking, his three doctoral students pulled out pipes. And they had their legs crossed just the way they did. And actually, he sat back and, and they had their hands twisted in that same incredible way to hold their pipes. Was it conscious or was it unconscious that this teacher, this scholar that they admired and come to study with, that they gradually took on some of the characteristics of their teacher. Our transformation, though, is not those kind of outside things. It's internal. And it is going to be ultimately the work of the Spirit. As we are admiring Christ, we're looking forward. We, we revere Him. Uh, as Beale would also say, that we... We come to resemble what we revere. As we are revering Christ, now we have the Holy Spirit in us working to gradually transform us so that we start taking on the qualities, the characteristics of who Christ is. That's why it's interesting, I think, that Paul says it's important where you put your focus. Where do you put your center? What is it that you look at? What you think on? Because that's what the Spirit is going to be using to move in that direction. And catch with me over in chapter uh, oh, 03 in Philippians. Uh, down about uh, verse, uh, well, go up to verse uh, 13. He's talking about obtaining salvation and so on. And Paul's talking about not getting to of not being perfect. He said, brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is, Paul's mind says you have to think upward and think forward to the coming of Christ and then he says, and we find our verb again, let those who are mature think this way. And if any, have any other thing you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. The focus needs to be upward and forward to Christ. But there seems to be another way you can put your focus. Look down at verse uh, 18. 
He says, for many of whom I have told you often, I've often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Therein is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And there's our verb again. Thinking, these are those who think on earthly things. Listen, they're moving in a direction of idolatry. Their God is their belly. And I take it belly here is not just merely a food issue, but he's talking about human passions. We used to call it sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? I guess we, you know, gluttony and drunkenness and sexuality. But Paul also is thinking, I think, in that area of our human passions. It would be the passions of the ego, pride, arrogance, wanting power, respect, position, wealth. All of those things can be there. And as you set your gaze on those and move, set your mind on that, you start moving so that those things become your idol. The scary thing for us is how often can we look off that, take our mind off there to look at these things, or how long can we gaze that we have started making steps that would lead to idolatry in our lives. But Paul says, that's not our focus. That can't be our focus. And in fact, he, he expands it beyond merely looking at Christ, but look at everything that is good and pleasing. Look down at chapter 4, verse 2. Um, I'm sorry, 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lowly, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. I guess full disclosure, he uses a different word for think there. It would have been perfect for me if he used the same one. But it's another one and it means the same thing. Consider, think about these things. It happens when we worship. It happens in our corporate worship when we come together and we in a concentrated way, I guess, Focus on the hymns and teaching about who Christ is. It happens in our daily worship as we we see our whole life as an act of worship and we're called to focus there. And it happens in our personal devotional time as we read the Bible to understand more. And especially I think it happens in our times of reflection and times of meditation. And by meditation I don't think of what we think of in the 70s of kind of om and, and emptying your mind and making it nothing. It is actually a concentrated focus on Christ or a concentrated focus on those things that are good and right and just. And we have time and meditation to reflect on those and they make, we make those our focus, our heart's desire, and in those times, the spirit working in us. He is moving us. He's causing us to resemble in our hearts and minds and our behavior that which we admire. Depending on what's going on in your life and your devotional times, you might think of different passages. You might think of, think of, of different stories of Christ. You might think of other things that are honorable things to think about 
if you're seeking to you need to move your life in this direction because you find some failure. But what Paul says is, when we're talking about maintaining unity, when we're talking about healing division, what he says before he lays out this magnificent passage of Christ, he says, think this. Think this way. And this morning, instead of singing, I want us to rise again and read this passage again, hoping to make this our focus. God, let this be our lens through which we see the world and in which we evaluate how we need to live. So again, read with me. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he was already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Father, we pray that you would work obedience to this in our hearts. We pray, Father, that we could live this out for we know that you are the one working in us to desire and to work for your glory. Now go with the peace of Christ and the love of Christ and with the mind of Christ.